Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the March 12th Sunday reading of the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel. My name is Valerie. Today we will be reading the following main articles. Taking Off by Nathan Deal. Voters to Weigh In on Rec Center Issue by Sam Klomhaus. On Course for the 2026 Winter Games by Dale Strode. Solar Company Delays Clifton Project for Now by Charles Ashby and following up with miscellaneous articles. Taking Off Terminal Expansion Helps Montrose Airport Traffic Rise by Nathan Deal Grand Junction Regional Airport is usually the busiest, most successful airport on Colorado's western slope, but in 2022, one of its main competitors soared to the top. Last year, Montrose Regional Airport saw 233,000 emplanements and 229,000 deplanements, serving a total of 463,000 passengers. That was enough to lift Montrose past Grand Junction for the year, as Grand Junction saw 228,000 emplanements and 231 deplanements, for a total of 460,000 passengers. The surge for Montrose Regional Airport came amid a $37 million terminal expansion project. The northern addition at the concourse level was completed in December, and the southern addition is anticipated to be completed by July 1st of this year. The airport also added 610 new paved parking spaces last year. I think 2022 was an important year for us with the progress we've made on our terminal and parking. Staying customer-focused is the key to getting that done, said Montrose Regional Airport Director of Aviation, Lloyd Arnold. With regard to Montrose community support, the support of our county commissioners and county management, those are also key factors to our success. We have a very supportive community and board. That's really helpful for us in the long term. Arnold believes the options available at Montrose Regional Airport played a role in the airport's successful year. Montrose welcomed Southwest Airlines service in 2020 that it provides access to hubs such as Denver, Austin, and Dallas. Delta Airlines returned this winter with daily flights to and from Atlanta, making Montrose the only airport in the Western Slope that offers service through Southwest Airlines and Delta Airlines. United Airlines and American Airlines connections are also available at Montrose Regional Airport, with destinations including Houston and Phoenix. We're just staying customer-focused here in Montrose, and we provide a comprehensive flight schedule. We're very happy with the way things are progressing here, Arnold said. We provide a comprehensive service to a lot of hub locations throughout the United States. That's really been the key to our success. Why did Grand Junction fall behind? Grand Junction Regional Airport Executive Director Angela Padalecki 
said that a driver in the airport's 2022 statistics and why the airport fell behind Montrose's in passenger traffic was Delta's exit in January of 2022, ending the only air connection between Grand Junction and Salt Lake City. Delta carried 85,000 travelers in 2021 to and from Grand Junction, so the loss of that flight has been felt by Grand Junction Regional Airport ever since. They made the announcement that they were exiting in December of 2021, so it left no time for any airline to fill that gap, Padalecki said. Our capacity, our total number of flights and seats in the market, was way down in the early part of last year. Even though the flights were full, we were still way down in passenger numbers. However, as the year went on, Grand Junction saw a bounce back in passenger traffic, thanks partially to airlines like United and American, adding capacity to its connections to and from the city. United dedicated a 126-seat Airbus 319 to one of the four daily flights from Grand Junction to Denver, as part of that expansion in capacity. And in total, United saw 17,000 more emplanements and 21,000 more deplanements in Grand Junction last year than it did in 2021. American accounts for 51% of the Grand Junction airport traffic, and United is at 43%, according to airport statistics. Padalecki said Grand Junction Regional Airport returned to pre-pandemic levels by the end of the year. This is supported by the airport's statistics, as October was its busiest month, with 23,000 employments and 22,000 deployments. She said that momentum from the end of the year has carried over into 2023 so far. The airport saw 35,000 passengers this January a 20% increase from 29,000 passengers last January. Now that we're in the first quarter of this year, we see a very different picture than the first quarter of last year, Padalecki said. In the first quarter of this year, the airlines have more seats scheduled than they did in the first quarter of 2019, when Delta was still here. Now that that capacity has recovered, Despite the fact that we're still missing Delta, and we do miss that service from a seat perspective, we've more than recovered with our busiest first quarter since the pandemic began. We're really confident that we're back in a healthy state of air service and back on a growth trajectory. A huge example of how much air traffic dropped at Grand Junction was the record-setting five-month stretch in 2021. From June through October, the airport average was just under 28,000 travelers a month, with an all-time record of 28,000 employments in October of 2021. Hopes for this year Padalecki believes 2023 will be a big year for the airport, with traffic rebounding and passengers responding positively to airlines' increased capacity. It's so important that when they add additional service that the community uses, which they've done, she said. We're grateful for that and excited to see that continue throughout the rest of the year. That'll be critical in order for us to maintain a growth trajectory when it comes to air service. 
About $40 million of construction work is planned for various airport projects this year, making it the busiest year of construction at the airport on record. One of the projects resulting from that construction will be a $2.9 million parking lot expansion that will add 900 parking spots. The Grand Junction Airport Authority Board of Commissioners approved the contract for the project at its most recent meeting. In November, the airport tripled its hourly parking rates from $2 per hour to $6 per hour. The daily parking rate also rose from $10 to $12. The airport earned $1,783,000 in parking revenue in 2022, with $369,000, nearly 21% of that, coming in November and December. This January, the airport saw $182,000 in parking revenue, a 31% increase from last January. Future Terminal Expansion Like Montrose, Grand Junction Regional Airport hopes to offer a better experience for travelers by expanding its terminal in the near future. We just completed an airport development plan to really inform the next steps when it comes to growth and development at the airport, including the terminal, Padalecki said. Right now, the terminal is adequately sized for the service we have, but in the secure area, things can get a little bit tight now that we have larger aircraft, so we would really like to see an expansion of the passenger boarding area that would add an additional gate. That's something we anticipate designing this year, and we'll hopefully move into the construction phase by 2025, with the help of different federal assistance programs that are available for funding. The airport's seasonal routes have already started to return, with Allegiant Airlines now offering a nonstop flight between Grand Junction and Mesa, Arizona. On June 1st, Allegiant will resume nonstop service from Grand Junction to Los Angeles International Airport. In the photo, Montrose Regional Airport Director of Aviation, Lloyd Arnold, stands inside a new area of airport terminal currently under construction. Below that, construction workers work outside a new area of airport terminal. Currently under construction at the Montrose Regional Airport earlier this month. In the third photo, travelers leave the Grand Junction Regional Airport terminal after arriving on a United Airlines flight from Denver last week. Voters to weigh in on Rec Center issue by Sam Clumhouse. Grand Junction voters are once again being asked to vote on a proposal for a recreation center at Matchett Park. In order to fund the rec center, the city of Grand Junction is proposing a 0.14% sales tax increase from 3.25% to 3.39%, which wouldn't apply to gas, groceries, or medicine, to increase the city's debt by $70 million. The sales tax increase would end in 30 years. The center would also be funded by the city's cannabis tax once retail marijuana stores are able to open. Increasing taxes is one of the main reasons that some residents have said they won't vote for the proposal.
Not in my backyard. No more increase in taxes of any form or kind. Charles Jones commented to the city when the idea was proposed in the fall of 2022. Leave Matchett Park as a nature park with all the wildlife and trails. We are surrounded by recreational opportunities. We don't need to place $70 million of debt on the backs of taxpayers for the next 30 years, William Ferguson said at the same time. Proponents of the Rec Center plan have said only about 30% of sales tax revenue comes from city residents, so the bill will largely be paid for by people from outside the area. Amenities for the Rec Center are projected to feature a lap pool, warm water leisure pool, lazy river, warm water therapy pool, water playground, gymnasium, indoor track, fitness and weights area, meeting rooms, and other community gathering and recreation spaces. The plan for the recreation center was developed over a number of months by city staff and Barker Rinker Seacat, a consulting firm that specializes in recreation centers. Sarah Matchett, whose grandfather was the original owner of the property, said her family sold the property to the city about 25 years ago with the understanding that a certain percentage would be kept open for public space. The vision was always that it would stay open, Matchett said. It's a beautiful piece of land. We wanted the community to get to enjoy it. It was always our understanding that it would be developed at some point as a resource for the community. The Rec Center Committee's co-chair, Peter Booth, said the center brings more assets than just recreation, and will help with the community space, places to gather for meetings, events, etc. He said it will also be a valuable tool to attract businesses and professionals. Booth said the recreation center has been endorsed by the Grand Junction Chamber of Commerce, the Grand Junction Economic Partnership, and the Downtown Development Authority, as well as some private businesses in the recreation space. Matchett said it's good to have it centrally located where a lot of families live, and that is something that will make the community more resilient. The other committee co-chair, Andrea Creeves, also noted the center will serve the entire age spectrum. Grand Junction needs to make sure other parts of town have amenities, not just downtown and riverfront, Matchett said. The eastern side of town, it's underserved, Just the way the town has grown and developed, it's all been pulled towards, for good reason, the riverfront and Colorado National Monument, and there are some reasons to pull it that way, but we do need to make sure that we're taking care of the other side too, Matchett said. The center could also help the city add more needed amenities, such as soccer fields and pickleball courts at Matchett Park, Booth said. It's a jumping point to develop the rest of Matchett Park, he said. The lack of pickleball courts in the proposed plan, at least initially with the recreation center, is another reason why people have said they won't vote for the proposal. No pickleball courts? I guess I'll have to wait until the next iteration when you listen to the public to vote for it, and I wanted to so badly, Jean Benson stated. This is not the first time a recreation center has been on the ballot in Grand Junction, 
with the most recent time a group tried for one being 2019, when the idea was shot down by voters. In 2019, there were more issues on the ballot, such as Grand Junction High School, roads, and public safety, Booth said. Those issues, those other priorities, have been taken care of, or are in the process thereof, of being taken care of. And so this is not the last piece, obviously, but this is contributing that investment in the community, Booth said. One of the strengths of this proposal is it's asking for one facility, which could later on expand with grants and other funding sources, Creeves said. It's asking for what we need right now, Creeves said. The strength of this proposal is that it incorporates feedback from voters from previous elections to make sure this proposal is customized for the needs of Grand Junction, including what we need and not including what we don't need. Creeves said. Even if you're not planning on spending a ton of time at that center, if we are targeting people and making them happier and healthier, making them feel more connected to their community, we're less likely to have some of the larger unfortunate community strife and problems that happen when we get a lot of, I don't know, teenagers without open gym time and a lot of excess energy, Matchett said. Let's get them something to do. On course for the 2026 Winter Games, Snowboarding Mother of Two, Training for Paralympics, by Dale Strode. Destination, Cortina, Italy, 2026. Jennifer Ackers, a Grand Junction Mother of Two, is competing for a position on the U.S. Paralympic snowboard team for the 2026 Winter Games, specifically in banked slalom and snowboard cross. But first, the numbers must add up internationally for inclusion of the upper limb para category in the 2026 Paralympic snowboarding program for Italy. Up until potentially this season, there hasn't been enough women's upper limb athletes to make a snowboarding category, said Ackers, whose right shoulder is paralyzed. Really, up until recently, I didn't know this might be an option. Ackers, now 37, has been an ardent snowboarder since she was 16. I paralyzed my shoulder snowboarding when I was 18, Ackers said. She immediately got back on the board, relearning to balance, carve, and ride with a seized back shoulder and dangling right arm. My back arm is my injured arm. It just kind of flops around back there, said Ackers, who is a regular left foot forward snowboarder. Her right hand, however, functions just fine. The native of the Jersey Shore, who grew up with a teacher mom and a surfing coach dad, rode her snowboard all through college at St. Bonaventure University, where Ackers starred as the one-armed captain and leading scorer on the women's rugby team. I could only ever play left wing, Ackers joked. Then I wanted to move out west where the big mountains are, said Ackers who volunteered with AmeriCorps and worked with the Rocky Mountain Youth Corps in Steamboat Springs. The well-traveled snowboarder and online snowboard equipment consultant spent time working at Dead Horse Point, backpacking through South America, farming in Hawaii, teaching at the Denver Botanic Gardens, and snowboarding at Arapaho Basin and Copper Mountain, among other locations. 
all while starting a family. Now with two children, ages four and six. Her husband's transfer to Grand Junction last year proved fortuitous for her snowboarding. Ackers said, "We're not sitting in traffic now." She said, "It's forty-five minutes to get to Powderhorn." She said she can drop the kids at school, train at Powderhorn, and then pick up the kids after school. She said she had been riding recreationally when she encountered another upper limb para snowboarder, who had tried to get their category included at the Beijing Winter Paralympic Games. Ackers then joined the drive for upper limb snowboarding for the 2026 Games in Italy. FIS and the International Paralympic Committee officials indicated that if there were at least six qualified athletes from three different countries eligible, snowboard cross and banked slalom will be included in the 2026 Games. A key measure of the numbers will be the snowboarding para world championships that opened earlier this week in La Molina, Spain. Aggers will be there, attempting to accumulate vital FIS points and earn a spot on the U.S. Paralympic team. If I can make the podium, first, second, or third, in either border cross or banked slalom, and if we do have those events, I should make the U.S. team. Aggers said. She had launched full speed into training for banked slalom and border cross after she had met the other riders in her upper limb category. She trained at Copper Mountain and entered due tour events to gain competitive experience. She since trained with Team Utah at the famed Woodward Park City snowboard facility. This year, Aggers did her first major competition in upper limb para snowboarding at Big White Ski Resort in British Columbia, Canada. Now, she's poised for the World Championships in Spain. And possible inclusion on the national Paralympic team, which would mean funding and support beyond her own GoFundMe and other fundraising efforts. Numerically, the future looks promising, she said. If everyone shows up, we should have enough to make a 2026 team event in women's upper limb, she said. The World Para Snowboarding Championships originally were scheduled for January. But a lack of snow forced postponement until March. The timing is kind of right, she said. There's a groundswell behind us. Hopefully, I can be a part of it. I hope everything works out. From surfing and riding skateboards as a kid on the Jersey Shore to snowboarding at Killington and hiking in Patagonia, Ackers is ready for another destination and another challenge. For a mother of two. Managing a snowboard career and a household can be a test," she said, "a test even for a mom with two good arms. This would have been a lot more convenient if I had done it ten years ago," said Ackers, a natural righty who can throw a perfect football spiral left-handed. In the first photo, the caption reads, "Jennifer Ackers, shown competing at Big White Ski Resort in Kelowna." British Columbia has her sights set on competing for a spot in the U.S. Paralympic snowboard team in the 2026 Winter Games. She and her husband and their two children moved to Grand Junction last year, which has given her easier access to training at Powderhorn, 
and still having plenty of time for their son, Sam, and daughter, Cece, who spent a recent afternoon at Long Family Memorial Park. Council Candidates Address Short-Term Rentals by Sam Clomhouse Candidates running for seats in the April 4th municipal election were asked about regulating short-term rentals and how short-term rentals affect affordable housing at a forum on Wednesday. The forum was hosted by KWSI 100.3 Radio. The three candidates with professional ties to the real estate industry, Greg Hates, Cody Kennedy, and Sandra Weckerly, said they opposed regulating short-term rentals. It comes down to personal property rights, Hates, a chiropractor and real estate investor running in District B, said. If I own a home downtown, and I want to leave it vacant for a year, obviously not blighted, take care of the yard, I should have every right to do that. I own the home, that's my property. Likewise, if I want to rent it out, I should be able to do that. If I want someone to rent it for a week at a time, I should also be able to do that as well. Jason Nguyen, also running in District B, said short-term rentals are a major concern. We don't want to turn into a Moab or an Aspen where short-term rentals took over all the housing stock, Nguyen said. Nguyen said the city should look at capping short-term rentals by number or percentage. Tourism shouldn't come at the expense of the community itself, Nguyen said. Weckerly, who is running in District A, noted that there is a proposed cap working its way through city staff and the planning commission, but the cap is a very high number. Weckerly also said Grand Junction doesn't have the same housing inventory issues as resort towns that have capped short-term rentals. We just don't have that problem in Grand Junction. I would absolutely be willing to look at this problem where it does become a problem, but right now in Grand Junction, short-term rentals are absolutely not leading to the lack of affordability, Wackerly said. Kennedy, also running in District A, said Grand Junction's problem is that it needs more inventory, so the city should help facilitate more development instead of focusing on short-term rentals. What we need is inventory. So let's not put that on the back of a very small group of people, Kennedy said. Jamie Porta, running against Kennedy and Weckerly in District A, said the city should make it easier for people to run short-term rentals the right way and wants to focus enforcement on nuisance homes that are vacant. Porta said she doesn't want Grand Junction to become like other cities that are overrun with short-term rentals. Your block turns into party town every weekend, Porta said. Scott Balefuss, in the at-large race, said there are a lot of people operating short-term rentals under the radar and not complying with regulations, and he has advocated to the city to clean things up. None of us wants to live in a neighborhood with 18 houses and 17 of them are short-term rentals, Balefuss said. Diane Schwenke also running for the at-large seat, said the city is not going to solve its affordable housing issues by infringing on property rights. Schwenke said short-term rentals are still a small portion of Grand Junction's housing stock, 
and a better approach than regulating short-term rentals is incentivizing affordable housing. Anna Stout, who is running unopposed in District C, and Mike Duell, who is running in District B, were not in attendance. Hawthorne's historic roots. Park's name traces to tree from author Nathaniel Hawthorne's home. One of the original city parks in Grand Junction's town plat, Walnut Park, comprises the area from Gunnison Avenue to Hill Avenue and Fourth Street to Fifth Street. In 1895, ladies from Grand Junction's Loyal Temperance Legion asked the town council for permission to beautify and improve Walnut Park, and that it be known as Children's Park. The request was granted, and together with school children, they began a makeover project. Arbor Day festivities that year included children gathered at the new Fifth Street Park to plant more trees. A story said. Grand Junction's 1882 town plat shows the four original parks located in each of the four quarters of the town. Tree varieties were planted in parks of the same name: Cottonwoods in Cottonwood Park (now Whitman Park), Maples in Maple Park (now Emerson Park), Walnuts in Walnut Park (now Hawthorne Park), and Chestnuts in Chestnut Park (now known as Washington Park). Parks weren't immediately developed. But the map showed elementary schools were to be built north of each park. The Legion ladies spearheaded a tree planting project in 1899, meant to symbolize a hope in the town's future. Hundreds of trees were planted, each bearing the name of a promising youth or maiden of the city, who was around age six or older. The ladies tenderly placed the sod around the roots and made touching speeches. A story said. The trees were planted with the wish that the children would grow up as strong and stalwart as these trees do. A school built in 1908 was frequently referred to as the new school building at Fourth and Hill, until September 1909, when the school board named the large new school building to be Hawthorne School. During an Arbor Day celebration a year later, the Reverend and Mrs. H. H. Beach gifted a tree to the school. Emerson Park research revealed that the couple had also gifted an elm tree to Emerson School in 1911, said to be from the Concord, Massachusetts, home of Ralph Waldo Emerson. This tree, the Beaches said, came from the home of author Nathaniel Hawthorne, who also lived in Concord. The planting of the tree that grew on the home farm of Nathaniel Hawthorne, in Concord, Massachusetts. And which was presented to the school by Mrs. H. H. Beach, was a memorable feature," said an April fourteenth, nineteen ten story. Hawthorne's school principal later expressed appreciation for the tree, reporting that the little balsam tree from Hawthorne's home, which has come such a long journey into the far west, is doing well, and seems to possess a great amount of energy. Born in 1804 in Salem, Massachusetts, Hawthorne and his wife arrived at the Old Manse in Concord in 1945 as newlyweds, renting it for a hundred dollars a year for three years. After some time away from Concord, they returned and lived in another home, the Wayside, 
previously owned by author Louisa May Alcott. It's unknown which property the balsam tree came from. Hawthorne died in 1864 at the age of 64, and the tree at Hawthorne School was planted in 1910, 46 years later. Ongoing improvements at Children's Park included a new concrete fountain in 1914, with a splendid goldfish pond and floating lilies around it. Five-year-old Winifred Schumann drowned in the one-foot-deep pond in the summer of 1924, perhaps awed by the fish and lilies in the water. The pond was eventually removed. Its foundation remains in the center of the park. More recognized as the border of a rose garden, a large playground was dedicated in 1915, and Children's Park was renamed Hawthorne Park in 1916 by the same ordinance that renamed the four original parks from tree varieties to their current names. A few bars from the original playground remain, but trees that represented children have died or were removed. There is, however. One tree in Hawthorne Park, on the west side, that was planted in the mid 1990s as a tiny sapling. It's dedicated as a living memorial to area homeless who die each year. Photos by Tammy Gamalik for the Daily Sentinel. What's in a name is a feature that looks into how or who things in the area were named after. If you are curious about a name, let us know. Nine seven zero two five six. Four two three two, or email tips at gjsentinel dot com. Solar Company delays Clifton project for now, by Charles Ashby. A Denver-based company that builds solar farms is pulling back on a proposed array between Clifton and Palisade, at least for a short time. That company, Pivot Energy. Announced in a letter to area residents on Friday that it has withdrawn its permit application with Mesa County to give it more time to address their concerns. Afterwards, the company plans to reapply. We realize we need more time to meet with you and other community members to discuss outstanding concerns and share how we hope to address them, the company said in the letter. We aim to revise and resubmit the application later this year. Once all outstanding development milestones have been met and further community input has been incorporated into the final project design, the company's project, to be located on 12 acres alongside Interstate 70 north of Clifton, was to come before the Mesa County Planning Commission this month. It was to install 6,200 solar modules that would generate 2.5 megawatts of electricity. However, local neighbors have complained that it would have been an eyesore to their view of the Mesa and Mount Garfield, and be a poor introduction to the Grand Valley for motorists coming into it through Dubuque Canyon. The company is planning to donate 100% of the power generated from it to at least 500 low-income residents in the county. It already operates two other arrays in the county and five in Garfield County. There is no other project like this in Mesa County, and given Excel's rules, we cannot pick a new location. The letter reads, "Trust us. If we could, we would." Over the past five years, 
The company has built several solar gardens in the two-county area, including one south of Clifton and another near the I-70 interchange with U.S. Highway 50 west of Grand Junction. Both primarily serve the Grand Junction Regional Airport. Ex-lawmaker chosen to lead state GOP. Williams defeated Peters McCarney, by Sandra Fish, The Colorado Sun. Loveland, former state representative Dave Williams will lead the Colorado GOP for the next two years, after three rounds of voting on Saturday by the party's state central committee. Williams of Colorado Springs will succeed Christy Burton Brown. Who decided to step aside after two years as GOP chair? Indicted former Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters threw her support to Williams after the second round of voting, making a public announcement from the floor that earned a rebuke from Burton Brown for violating party bylaws. Former Mesa County GOP chair Kevin McCartney had also sought to lead the party. He received the same number of votes as Peters. Williams, who lost a GOP primary to U.S. Representative Doug Lamborn last year, gave a speech defending former President Donald Trump. Like Peters, Williams believes that Trump won the 2020 election. We are the party that elected Donald J. Trump, and we are not going to apologize. Williams said, "It's time to go on the attack." So why don't we get on the offense? Offense, offense. Eric Adland finished second to Williams in all three rounds of voting. About twenty votes separated the two in the first two rounds. Both Williams and Adland were among the six of seven candidates who either denied that Democratic President Joe Biden won the twenty twenty election or questioned the outcome of the contest. Williams also criticized past party leadership. Our party doesn't have a brand problem, he said. Our party has a problem with feckless leaders who are ashamed of you and ashamed of our conservative values. Storm breaches California levee, thousands evacuate. System known as Pineapple Express causes vast damage. By Nick Corey and Stephanie Dazio. The Associated Press, Watsonville, California, a Northern California agricultural community famous for its strawberry crop, was forced to evacuate early Saturday after the Pajaro River's levee was breached by flooding from a new atmospheric river that pummeled the state. Across the Central Coast's Monterey County. More than 8,500 people were under evacuation orders and warnings on Saturday, including roughly 1,700 residents, many of them Latino farm workers, from the unincorporated community of Pajaro. Officials said the Pajaro River's levee breach is about 100 feet wide. Crews had gone door to door on Friday afternoon to urge residents to leave before the rains came. But some stayed and had to be pulled from floodwaters on early Saturday. First responders and the California National Guard rescued more than 50 people overnight. One video showed a member of the guard helping a driver out of a car trapped by water up to their waists. 
We were really hoping to avoid and prevent this situation, but the worst-case scenario has arrived with the Pajaro River overstopping and Livy breaching at about midnight, wrote Luis Alejo, chair of the Monterey County Board of Supervisors, on Twitter. Alejo called the flooding massive, saying that the damage will take months to repair. The Pajaro River separates the counties of Santa Cruz and Monterey in the area that flooded Saturday. Floodwaters that got into the region's wells might be contaminated with chemicals, officials said, and residents were told not to drink or cook with tap water for fear of illness. Officials had been working along the levee in the hopes of shoring it up when it was breached around midnight, Friday into Saturday. Crews began working to fix the levee around daybreak on Saturday, as residents slept in evacuation centers. Oliver Gonzalez, 12, told the Associated Press that he, his mother, and his aunt were rescued around 5 a.m. on Saturday in Parajo. He grabbed his laptop, cell phone, and some important documents, but so much was left behind in their rush to leave. I'm kind of scared, he said several hours later from an evacuation center in nearby Watsonville. My mom's car was left in the water. Anais Rodriguez, 37, said first responders knocked on her home's door shortly after midnight. Her family packed about four days' worth of clothing and drove out to safety. She and her two children, her husband and her parents, along with their dog, Mila, arrived at the shelter about an hour later, with few answers about what this would mean for their community going forward. Across the state on Saturday, Californians contended with drenching rains and rising water levels in the atmospheric river's aftermath. In Tulare County, the sheriff ordered residents who live near the Tule River to evacuate, while people near the Pozo Creek in Kern County were under an evacuation warning. The National Weather Service's meteorologists issued flood warnings and advisories, begging motorists to stay off deluged roadways. The atmospheric river, known as a Pineapple Express, because it brought warm subtropical moisture across the Pacific from near Hawaii, was melting lower parts of the huge snowpack built in California's mountains. Yet another atmospheric river is already in the forecast for early next week. State climatologist Michael Anderson said a third appeared to be taking shape over the Pacific and possibly a fourth. In the photo on the left, State Park's Swift Water Technicians, Jeremy Pais and Brian Keane, swim to rescue Lisbeth Hernandez, 18, as she shivers from the cold standing on top of her submerged truck on Friday in Casterly Creek in Watsonville, California. In the photo on the right, Hernandez, who cannot swim, is hustled to safety after the rescue. Saudi deal with Iran worries Israel, shakes up Middle East. By Isabel Debris and Sami Magdi. The Associated Press. Jerusalem. News of the rapprochement between longtime regional rivals Saudi Arabia and Iran sent shockwaves through the Middle East on Saturday, 
and dealt a symbolic blow to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has made the threat by Tehran a public diplomacy priority and personal crusade. The breakthrough, a culmination of more than a year of negotiations in Baghdad and more recent talks in China, also became ensnared in Israel's internal politics. Reflecting the country's divisions at a moment of national turmoil, the agreement, which gives Iran and Saudi Arabia two months to open their respective embassies and re-establish ties after seven years of rupture, more broadly represents one of the most striking shifts in Middle Eastern diplomacy over recent years. In countries like Yemen and Syria, long caught between the Sunni kingdom and the Shiite powerhouse. The announcement stirred cautious optimism. In Israel, it caused disappointment, along with finger pointing. One of Netanyahu's greatest foreign policy triumphs remains Israel's U.S. brokered normalization deals in 2020 with four Arab states, including Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates. They were part of a wider push to isolate and oppose Iran in the region. He has portrayed himself as the only politician capable of protecting Israel from Tehran's rapidly accelerating nuclear program and regional proxies, like Hezbollah in Lebanon and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Israel and Iran have also waged a regional shadow war that has led to suspected Iranian drone strikes on Israeli-linked ships ferrying goods in the Persian Gulf, among other attacks. A normalization deal with Saudi Arabia, the most powerful and wealthy Arab state, would fulfill Netanyahu's prized goal, reshaping the region and boosting Israel's standing in historic ways. Even as backdoor relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia have grown, the kingdom has said it won't officially recognize Israel before a resolution to the decades-long Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Since returning to office late last year. Netanyahu and his allies have hinted that a deal with the kingdom could be approaching. In a speech to American Jewish leaders last month, Netanyahu described a peace agreement as a goal that we are working on in parallel with the goal of stopping Iran. But experts say the Saudi-Iran deal that was announced on Friday has thrown cold water on those ambitions. Saudi Arabia's decision to engage with its regional rival. Has left Israel largely alone as it leads the charge for diplomatic isolation of Iran, and threats of a unilateral military strike against Iran's nuclear facilities. The UAE also resumed formal relations with Iran last year. It's a blow to Israel's notions and efforts in recent years to try to form an anti-Iran bloc in the region," said Yol Guzansky. An expert at the Institute for National Security Studies. In this photo released by Xinhua News Agency, Ali Shamkani, the Secretary of Iran's Supreme National Security Council, right, shakes hands with Saudi National Security Advisor Musad bin Mohammed Al Aiban, left, as Chinese diplomat Wang Yi, center, looks on. Bank failure reverberates. From wine country to London, shutdown causes tremors. By Stan Choi and Bobby Kana Calvin.
The Associated Press. New York. It was called Silicon Valley Bank, but its collapse is causing shockwaves around the world. From winemakers in California to startups across the Atlantic Ocean, companies are scrambling to figure out how to manage their finances after their bank suddenly shut down on Friday. The meltdown means distress not only for businesses, but also for all their workers whose paychecks may get tied up in the chaos. California Governor Gavin Newsom said on Saturday that he's talking with the White House to help stabilize the situation as quickly as possible, to protect jobs, people's livelihoods, and the entire innovation ecosystem that has served as a tentpole for our economy. U.S. customers with less than $250,000 in the bank can count on insurance provided by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corps. Regulators are trying to find a buyer for the bank in hopes that customers with more than that can be made whole. That includes customers like Circle, a big player in the cryptocurrency industry. It said it had about $3.3 billion of the roughly $40 billion in reserves for its USDC coin at SVB. That caused USD coin's value, which tries to stay firmly at a dollar, to briefly plunge below 87 cents on Saturday. It later rose back above 97 cents, according to Coindesk. Across the Atlantic, startup companies woke up Saturday to find SVB's UK business will stop making payments or accepting deposits. The Bank of England said on late Friday that it will put Silicon Valley Bank UK in its insolvency procedure, which will pay out eligible depositors up to 170,000 British pounds, or USD $204,000, for joint accounts as quickly as possible. We know that there are a very large number of startups and investors in the ecosystem who have significant exposure to SVB UK and will be very concerned. Dom Hallis, executive director of Coadec, which represents British startups, said on Twitter. He cited concern and panic. The Bank of England said SVB UK's assets would be sold to pay creditors. It's not just startups feeling the pain. The bank's collapse is having an effect on another important California industry, fine wines. It's been an influential leader to vineyards since the 1990s. This is a huge disappointment, said winemaker Jasmine Hirsch, the general manager of Hirsch Vineyards in California's Sonoma County. Hirsch said she expects her business will be fine, but she is worried about the broader effects for smaller vintners, looking for lines of credit to plant new vines. They really understand the wine business, Hirsch said. The disappearance of this bank as one of the most important leaders is absolutely going to have an effect on the wine industry, especially in an environment where interest rates have gone up. In Seattle, Shelf Engine CEO Stefan Kalb found himself immersed in emergency meetings devoted to figuring out how to meet payroll, instead of focusing on his startup company's business of helping grocers manage their food orders. It's been a brutal day. We literally have every single penny in Silicon Valley Bank, Kalb said on Friday, 
paying the deposit amount that's now tied up at millions of dollars. He is filing a claim for the $250,000 limit, but that won't be enough to keep paying Shelf Engine's 40 employees for long. That could force him into a decision about whether to keep furloughing employees until the mess is cleaned up. I'm just hoping the bank gets sold during the weekend, Kalb said. Tara Fung, co-founder and CEO of tech startup CoCreate, that helps launch digital loyalty and rewards programs, said her firm uses multiple banks besides Silicon Valley Bank, and so she was able to switch over its payroll and vendor payments to another bank on Friday. Fung said her firm chose the bank as a partner. Because it is the gold standard for tech firms and banking partnerships, and she was upset that some people seem to be gloating about its failure, and unfairly tying it to doubts about cryptocurrency ventures. In the photo, the caption reads, "The Bank of England said late Friday it would put Silicon Valley Bank UK in its insolvency procedure, which would pay out depositors up to a limit of 170,000 British pounds." Or two hundred and four thousand U.S. dollars for joint accounts as quickly as possible. Thank you for joining us for the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel. My name is Valerie. AINC presents your low vision resource of the day. Today, we would like to highlight Insight Skills Center. The center provides tools, counseling, and training for low vision individuals. Learn more by visiting www.insightskills.org. That's E N S I G H T. S K I L L S, or by calling eight six six three seven five five six nine three. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org, or by calling three zero three seven eight six. Seven 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 seven. The Audio Information Network of Colorado.